So I didn't know exactly what to expect when I showed up in my pastor's office for an appointment that day, but I was hopeful that things would go well. I was probably 28, maybe 29 at the time, a brand new mother, and I'd come to talk to the senior pastor of my large church about the reality that I was beginning to sense that someday I, like him, felt called to start a community of faith. I was there to confess my interest in becoming what in our church subculture was known as a church planter. And I was hopeful he'd be receptive and helpful because I knew this topic happened to be what this particular pastor was like all about. He wasn't just the lead pastor of our large church. He was the head of church planting for our entire denomination. He'd had this conversation about discerning starting a church with countless young people before. I mean, people came to our church from around the globe to intern with him, to be coached by him, to be trained before they headed out and tried to start their own faith communities, doing exactly the thing I felt called to do. And I thought I really had an advantage to secure his support because he already knew me. I'd been leading worship in his church for years. I'd been speaking at his wife's women's events. I'd been mentored by her and her friends. I'd been volunteering with the youth group that his kids were in. I was his daughter's Bible study leader. So I started with a funny story about the conference he had led years before, back when Jason and I were just young, engaged couple attending this church conference together. And this pastor had invited everyone up under 30 to come forward so they could pray for us and commission the next generation. And I shared how I felt like as people were putting hands on me and praying, I heard one of like the clearest potential words from God I'd ever heard in prayer saying, Someday, you guys are going to start a church. Don't tell Jason. Just pray about it. See what I'm going to do. I shared how at the time, looking around, being a part of a church culture in which men led churches and women were generally pastor's wives, I rolled my eyes at this thought. And so it was like, oh, shoot, you're going to call Jason to be a pastor. I'm going to get stuck being a pastor's wife. Bleh. But I committed to praying for the eventual church. And sure enough, years later, I was beginning to understand maybe the reason I sensed I wasn't supposed to tell Jason at the time was because it wasn't actually for him at all. This dream was for me. I talked about my own emerging sense of a call to ministry. And the assumption I'd made at first that if I went that route, I was working as a musician at the time, so it made sense I'd settle into a career as a music pastor, a worship pastor. What, that seemed fairly um, straightforward, even open, particularly to me as a woman. But I also began to express, as I began to express an interest in ministry, and I found myself giving, being given chances to preach, I found that I enjoyed it. I found that I was good at it. And so I told him about the moment that the woman who had been mentoring me at the time, a female pastor on staff who worked for him, a woman I'll call Susan, uh, had told me that as she looked at me in action, as she looked at my mix of gifts, she didn't think I was ultimately meant to be a worship pastor. She thought I might be gifted and called to someday start a church myself. 
And I shared how when she said that, it was like everything clicked. I felt overwhelmed and amazed because it just rung so true, but it also felt so scandalous and impossible. It felt like everything made sense, but it also came with so many questions because we were in a church movement at the time that had not yet blessed women at the most senior levels of leadership. However, weeks later, it would be announced that the national board of our denomination was taking that position that women were now blessed to lead even at the most senior levels. And my senior pastor, this man I was meeting with, was one of the national board members who helped lead the way for that change, who blessed women at all levels, something I think my female mentor knew was coming when she started to encourage me to dream bigger. And then there was, for me, the story of like the moment the straw broke the camel's back around my own fear and resistance to this dream. I shared how just a few months after that epiphany moment with that mentor, I was towards the end of my first pregnancy, leading worship with a huge belly at a women's conference that this man's wife had organized, along with two of her best pastor friends. I shared how I found myself being prayed for by one of those friends, a pastor from Iowa named Aidy Wassing. I didn't know her personally at the time. I just knew her by reputation. And she'd been preaching at this conference, a stirring teaching about saying yes to the thing God was calling you into. And at the end, she'd called all the women who felt like God might be inviting them to someday start a church, to come forward and be prayed for. And so I, along with many other women, responded to this call that just felt too on point for me to deny. And as AD saw me in the crowd and came over to me and she put her hand on me and prayed, I fell on the ground for the first and only time in my life, just overcome by the spirit in all of my very pregnant glory. And as I lay there, I felt all that fear and resistance give way to a sense of surrender. I felt sure that even if this journey to someday try to start a faith community was like doomed to failure, I had to at least pursue it. I had to try. It was a powerful story. I knew it was. It was the kind of story that I knew usually delighted this pastor. He told these kind of crazy God intervening in your life in unexpected ways that unfold over time, like in all of his sermons, which is why I was a bit taken aback when his response was more guarded than enthusiastic. You might not be wrong, he said. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. He went on. You might not be wrong, but I can't help you. Have you tried talking to Aidy? And there it was. He didn't need to spell out the why of how, why he couldn't help me pursue the path of church planting. I understood. His reference to one of the only female lead pastors in the whole denomination at the time made it clear the problem wasn't my story or my sense of call. It was my gender. I had hoped that wouldn't be an issue. This was one of the leaders who had just supported the move in theory to bless women to be senior pastors, but apparently that hadn't actually impacted his personal sense of the role he would play in developing female church planters. 
His model of raising up future planters was well known. He had the posse, this group of young men at all times with him. He took them places. Uh, whenever he went to speaking engagements, he brought these guys along. They were his travel buddies. They drove on long car rides together. They shared hotel rooms. And I just didn't fit the model in his mind. There was not any kind of imagination for another way to do it. And so the answer was simply, I'm sorry, I can't. If I was gonna find a support structure in pursuing that dream going forward, it wasn't gonna be from him. Well, let's start with this story because for me, it's a story about that challenging season that many of us find ourselves in as young adults trying to navigate a way forward into building a life and looking for answers to the big questions of what we want our lives to look like and how we live well into the things we're feeling drawn to. And this feels relevant to me in this particular moment of coming out of COVID transition because as we as a community are starting to emerge from the Zoom only space, we've been talking about growing as an intergenerational community, right? For the last year plus, we've had this group in Zoom. That's, that's one group that's a segment of our community. But as we've started meeting in person again, we've started to see there are more people in our community than just us, right? And part of that growth into intergenerational care, of course, means making space for the young kids in our, in our space, working to fully include them in our community. But young children aren't the only group we want to pay attention to. Because increasingly, Haven's incorporating more youth and young adults in our midst. Last weekend, we acknowledged a number of children and young adults who've been promoted or graduated, including those who've just graduated from high school and college. These folks and, and those who are in a similar stage of life to them, they are an emerging part of our community too. They may or may not be here in Zoom today, but they're increasingly a part of our demographic. Their parents might be here with us, right? And I would argue that we have a unique opportunity to bless these folks for however long they're in our midst, to, as Jeannie says, root for their rising. As we think about seasons in this time of transition, I think it's important to consider what role each of us in this community might have in supporting our youth and young adults and encouraging them as they come up. Now, as I've been thinking about this transition for our community and how we might consider it together, I found myself thinking about Jesus and his approach to the young adults in his world. For those of us who are familiar with the Jesus story, I think it can be really easy to just take for granted and overlook some of the basics, like Jesus traveling with a group of close followers or disciples without really thinking about what he's doing, why, how it fit into the culture of his day, how it might be instructive to us in a very different context. But that's what I'd like to consider a bit today. Because I think there's something there that's important for all of us to absorb as we continue to transition. And I hope it might prepare us to respond well as folks in our community dream and discern the lives they are building and look for support along the way. So we're gonna take a look today at a story from very early in the Gospel of John at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. 
We're going to pick it up with um, John, the, the writer, is focused on John the Baptist in the beginning, but the focus is starting to shift. So John the baptizer, John the Baptist, has just described how he experienced something really unique when he baptized this guy Jesus, that the spirit descended on him like a dove, leading him to conclude that this man is the chosen one of God, he says, and the, the one he feels called to prepare the community for. And that's right after he says that is where we're going to pick up the story. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and share the words. You can read them along. John chapter one, starting with verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples and gazing at Jesus as he walked by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw them following and said to them, what do you want? So they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? Jesus answered, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. Now it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. We're just going to pause there real quick. You can take the, the slide down for a bit. We'll come back to the next part in a bit. But I just want to name, let me find my notes again. Um, that's weird, right? There's a little bit of a, like a funny thing that's happening here because, you know, I think John's disciples feel caught off guard. I think there's like a little awkward moment here. Um, they are a little tongue-tied. They feel drawn to Jesus because of what John has just told them. But when they approach and he notices them, I think maybe they don't know quite what to say. It's that awkward thing you, that I think a lot of us are starting to do as we start to be in public again. We don't remember how to do small talk. So they don't want to gush with expectation for who this person is the moment they meet him. And so they reach for just like an innocuous question. Uh, where are you staying? But Jesus meets them where they're at and invites them further. He seems to sense they are more interested in knowing him than just like finding his address, right? So he doesn't just answer the surface question, oh, I'm at, you know, Ted's house and move on. No, he invites them to come with him and get the answer themselves. He invites them to know him and be known by him. Let's pick up the story in verse 40. Andrew, the brother, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two disciples who heard what John said and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, oh, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, or literally rock which is translated Peter. On the next day, Jesus wanted to set out for Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and exclaimed, look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel asked him, uh, how do you know me? Jesus replied, before Philip called you, 
When you were under the tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said to him, because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He continued, I tell all of you the solemn truth. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. All right. You can, uh, yep, sounds good. All right, so what exactly is happening here? Just a few more initial thoughts before we kind of get into um, what I, I think is helpful. First, we saw the story start with a couple of John the Baptist's followers being pointed to Jesus, drawn to him by their connection to John the Baptist. But then we start to see others connect with him directly. And there seems to be this like growing contagious energy. One person has an encounter, they go get someone else. Things begin to snowball. So who are all these people, these guys? And yes, in this patriarchal time, they're all guys at the beginning, though that does shift as the story goes on. But back to these guys, what do we know about them? They're likely pretty young men. Many of them we would consider kids today. Jesus was in his early 30s at this time, but it's believed by most scholars that most of his closest followers were a lot younger. So these guys he's encountering were probably teenagers or maybe in their early 20s, some probably as young as 13. These are young men who are being or have recently been trained in their family trades. Most of them we find out in some of the other gospels are fishermen. And they have good reason to assume that this trade they've been learning from their parents is what they will essentially be doing with their lives until they have this unique encounter with Jesus. Now, if you notice, there seems to be a recurring theme in this story, the way that John tells it. And the theme seems to be connected to the idea of sight. In these 16 verses, John uses some word explicitly mentioning sight 11 times. That's a lot. That tells you there's a theme. We've got gazing at Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. Jesus saw them following. Come, you will see. It's in almost every line. So what's that about? What is it about sight that is so important to this story, to what John wants us to understand is happening? And what might it tell us about Jesus's approach to these and the other young people he calls around him? And I want to name, as we focus on this, uh, that when we're talking about sight, we're going to use the language that John is using. But I think when he's talking about things being seen, he's really using metaphorical language, right? He's, he's pointing to perception, things that are perceived, not just with our physical eyes. So the first point I want to bring out here is that Jesus sees or perceives something in these young people that others don't see. Jesus perceives something in these young people that others don't perceive. Okay. To understand what's unique about how Jesus is operating, it's helpful to know more about the context that he's in and how generally a rabbi would call a group of disciples to follow him. So in the first century in Israel, there were various phases of education. Basically, Torah education was, was what the system was. 
um, of a boy growing into a young man that, that each one went through. And so these boys would start at about four or five. And this first phase of education would go till about 10, where, um, where the young men would be learning their letters and then eventually reading the Torah. And eventually um, the goal was to memorize the entire first five books of the Hebrew Bible, what, what they called the Torah, the first five books to completely memorize the Hebrew, which is amazing. And then around age 10, those students who had done really, really, really well, the, the, the cream of the crop students would be invited to go on in their studies. And, and in the next phase, they would actually try to memorize the rest of the whole Hebrew Bible. So the others who, you know, hadn't been A students, maybe you would say, um, would be dismissed at around age 10 with this common blessing. Bless you, my son. Go learn your father's trade and pray that your children are smarter than you so they may become rabbis. Wow, nice, right? That's quite a blessing. <laughs> so if you made the cut and you went forward a few years later, there would be another kind of marker level right? Most of the people who made it through the first cut wouldn't actually make it through the second. So by age 13 or 14, they too are being told, go learn your father's trade. Maybe you'll have smarter kids. But for those who are the very highest achievers in learning Torah, those who were the, the cream of the cream of the crop, the straight A students, the top of the batch, they had the opportunity to potentially become rabbis. And the way that happened is they identified a rabbi. They would approach a teacher that they wanted to emulate. They wanted to learn from, to study under, to eventually become like. And if you were lucky, when you approached a rabbi, he would ask you a series of questions. He'd quiz you on different matters of Torah. And if he approved of all your answers, you would be accepted to be one of this rabbi's disciples. And the identification of a disciple with a rabbi was considered so intimate that the common blessing for disciples in this era was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So the image, I mean, imagine, you know, it's a dusty place, right? They walk everywhere and it's, it's an arid climate. So as you walk behind your rabbi, may you be so close to him that the dust that his feet disturbs lands on you or as you sit at his feet, as was the custom, in, on the ground, listening to his teaching, may that very dust that he causes to be stirred up land on you. It was considered a great cultural honor to be the disciple of a rabbi. And very, very few men in Israel were given that honor. Very few were thought worthy of being covered in rabbi dust, which is why what Jesus is doing here is really radical. First of all, he's making invitations. He's not just expecting everyone to come and audition for him. He's approaching people, but he's also welcoming those who do approach him without making them prove their spiritual knowledge to experience belonging. All of these folks are working trades, which means at some point they did not make the cut to study with a rabbi. They were considered not the right types. They didn't fit the model. And yet Jesus sees something in them. He perceives something in them that the previous Torah teachers apparently didn't. He seems to have different criteria for who he's interested in investing in. 
And it's not just that Jesus sees past these guys' class or social status or level of education. The story also makes clear that he perceives them in unique ways. He has insight into who these guys are as people. In a couple of instances, it's clear, even in these first encounters, that Jesus has insight into these folks' characters. And when he speaks those insights out, they have power. We see it when he tells Simon. He would be called Cephas or Peter, the name that means rock. From the beginning, he's calling out this leadership quality in Peter that will play an important role in the future of building Jesus's spiritual community. We see it when he tells Nathaniel that he's an honest guy, a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And yes, part of this knowledge is clearly supernatural, but there is also a very natural power that's released simply in having others see things in you and acknowledge them out loud, particularly people who have some status, some experience. There's a power in having those things named by them. You don't have to be Jesus to do it. This was what was happening for me many years ago when my mentor Susan at the time said, Leah, I think you could plant a church. She was saying something that in my depth, I think I knew to be true, it wrong with truth when she said it, but I didn't have the confidence or the boldness to say it myself. I needed someone like her who had insight and experience and wisdom to see it in me and speak it out loud for me to have the capacity to see it in myself. What that female pastor was ultimately affirming in me is something akin to what I think Jesus was affirming in his disciples. And I think it's something all of us are invited to affirm in people of all generations in our community, but particularly our young people who may need the most help identifying this truth. Your story is a sacred story and it has spiritual power. Your story is a sacred story and it has spiritual power. God is present with you and in you and there is space here for your sacred story to make a meaningful impact on the world around you. This, I think, is what Jesus sees and is communicating with each of the people he encounters and connects with. From the first fisherman to the woman at the well, to Mary and her sister Martha, to each person he healed and each child he blessed. It's what I believe he wants to communicate to each of us and wants us to communicate to one another. And it comes with an invitation, which brings me to the other insight from this story to look at today. The second is that Jesus invites his followers to see something more. Jesus invites his followers to see or to perceive something more. The wordplay our storyteller John is using with this concept of sight doesn't just go one way. Jesus in the story responds to the people he is seeing by inviting them to greater sight. When asked where he's staying, he responds by saying, come and see. When Nathaniel marvels at Jesus's capacity to see him, Jesus makes clear that Nathaniel himself will see greater things. 
the invitation to come and see becomes contagious. Jesus invites the first followers to come and see, but verses later, it's the followers who are saying those words to their friends, come and see. Because Jesus sees the sacredness in each person he encounters, he wants them to discover it too. And that has power. He wants them, their metaphorical eyes to be opened. He wants them to perceive their own spiritual power and to see it in the others around them too. And so he invites them to a journey. He invites them to follow him. He invites them to come and see, to perceive new things, to notice the sacred dust of the divine surrounding them and to be people who are stirring up their own divine dust clouds and scattering God's presence in whatever places they find themselves in. He invites them to actively participate in the grand benevolent kingdom of God. Just weeks after that disappointing conversation with my senior pastor, I found myself on a couch in Iowa City, sitting in the living room of that other female pastor I had met months before. After being told by my mentor Susan and my senior pastor to connect with her, I had gone ahead and reached out. We spoke on the phone. She invited Jason and I and our six-month baby Elliot to come visit her family and her in Iowa City to come and see what their church was like, what their family life was like, to have a picture of what it could look like to be a female lead pastor who was also a mother. So we came for a quick weekend trip. We stayed in their home. We met their kids and some of their friends, and I, I led worship at their church. And after the service, after lunch, we sat on a couch in their living room and Adie asked to hear my story. And I shared some of the same details I had shared just weeks before with my senior pastor. But this time, the response was different. Hearing what had brought me there that day, hearing my own questions and fears about how could I possibly live into this dream of starting a community of faith as a woman, as a mom, but also sensing my heart to create safe spaces for people who couldn't feel included or at home in so many of our churches. Adie was moved. I could see a mist in her eyes. I could sense a gravity in her voice as she spoke. Leah, being with you and hearing your story, I feel like Elizabeth greeting her cousin Mary. The child in my womb is leaping to meet you and sense what is growing in you. I think you should come. Move here to Iowa City. Intern for me, learn what you can learn. And someday we'll bless you and send you out to start your church. When Jason and I made that four hour drive through cornfields from Chicago to Iowa City that weekend, baby in tow, we had absolutely no intention or desire ever to go there again, let alone move there, buy a house there, have two more babies in that city. But all of those things happened because a pastor named Adi saw something in me that others hadn't seen. And she spoke it out. She gave me capacity to see it and speak it of myself. And she invited me to come and see and live into the next leg of my spiritual journey 
And that kind of invitation has real power. I don't think Haven would exist if she hadn't opened herself to me and my story at a pivotal moment, an invited relationship, invited companionship. If this Haven grandmother hadn't actively rooted for my rising, for our rising. So Haven, as we continue to grow as a community on the other side of this season of so much disruption, I wanna encourage all of us in this space to be mindful, not only of our own needs in this season, but also of our own capacity to influence and actively root for the rising of those around us, particularly our youth and young adults. It could be so tempting to just hunker down and take care of ourselves. I mean, out of necessity, many of us have been doing that for the last 15 months. But as we begin to move into another moment, a different season, I think at least some of us are starting to experience enough healing enough hope, enough of our own spiritual strength that maybe we have something to give away. We have the capacity to connect with someone who could use our encouragement. And it can happen in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to mean signing up to volunteer with the kids on Sundays, though it certainly could, and Jeannie would be so grateful. But it simply could mean asking the younger person you're chatting with on Sunday into a deeper conversation, taking the time to really listen, maybe taking them out to lunch, maybe grabbing a cup of coffee or an ice cream cone, or just making it clear when you see them that you do see them, you perceive them, and that you perceive beauty and sacred strength in them, and you want them to know that. Remember, this is not just for some of us who might think of ourselves as the elders in our community or, or the people who are really good at it, like those certain people like, like we all know Kim is, right? But this is not just for the Kims. This is not just for the elders. Jesus was doing this in his early 30s. So wherever you are generally, generationally, you have something to share with those coming behind you. So may we, as a Haven community, be people who perceive one another in unique ways and invite one another to new perception too. May we foster the dreams that are being stirred in the hearts of our younger people right now. May we give birth to more havens to come. May we bless the rising of those leaders who will someday lead them. And may we all find ourselves covered with sacred dust as we do all of it. Amen, friends. Amen. <sighs> all right. I'm going to just take a moment to pray a blessing for our community in this. And then, uh, then we'll move into our, our, our next piece. So God, we do thank you for the ways that you are calling our community to grow as an intergenerational space, a space that includes adults, yes, but also children and youth and young adults and invites all of us, wherever we are on the spectrum, to be mindful of, 
to be looking out for who are the people you are calling us to say, come and see. I see something in you. Bless you. Would you open all of our eyes to see one another with your perception? May we all stir up some sacred dust. And may we be a community that is known for blessing the dreams that are cultivated in, in Haven and beyond. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do a few things. I'm going to give you a heads up about something.